Hey guys, it's Leisha and Kenny here, and welcome to another episode of Not Me, Not Today podcast. Hello, and hello to everyone, wherever you are in the world. How are you today? I'm doing pretty good, thank you. How are you? I'm feeling great, and I'm really looking forward to today's episode. I know you've put a lot of time and effort into researching today's story, so I can't wait for us all to hear it. I know that because this one is a long one, we've decided to split it into two episodes, which is actually the first time we've done that, but we may as well get started on part one. So, that leaves me with one question. Leisha, what's the story? Today's story is about Terry Jo Duperold. She was just 11 years old when she was found floating alone at sea on a raft. This is going to be a long story, but I promise you it's worth it. It's a multi-level survivor story, so I hope you're all as riveted as I was researching it. It's also true crime. Ooh, sounds exciting. Let's do this. Terry Jo Duperold was born in 1950 in Green Bay, Wisconsin, to Arthur and Jean Duperold. She was the middle of three children. Brian, her brother, was the eldest and 14 at the time of incident. Renee, who was nine, was her younger sister. I'm going to talk about Arthur and the family here because they do play quite a role in this story. Arthur, their father, had been a strong man and head of the family. He was a leader and someone that strived for more and would put all the work he could into bettering their lives. He was a high achiever and a successful man. Arthur had been president of his high school senior class, which was the class of 1939. He was also the debating champion there too. Cool. I'm sure some of those were impressive speeches that you gave when running. I'm sure they were. He then went on to college and studied at Lawrence College in Appleton, Wisconsin. Whilst in college, World War II began, so he decided to drop out and join the Navy. It didn't happen as smoothly as he first anticipated, though. He was a small and slight guy and not a lot of muscle or weight on him, so the Navy wouldn't actually take him at first. He had to gain weight before they'd take him on. Oh, wow. You'd think they'd be less picky in a time of war. True. It was during this time that he found a new love for fitness and working out. It was something he continued to do in his later life. After he was accepted into the Navy and completed his initial training, he was sent to the Far East. He worked there as a medical corpsman. Whilst he was working for the Navy and out in the Far East doing missions on a ship, he discovered a newfound love for the sea. The salty sea was something that he loved, seeing new fish, the warm water and the expansiveness of the open ocean. When he got to Southeast Asia on one of his trips, he took to land and helped the people treating wounds and malaria. This man did everything and went everywhere during this time. Eventually, he was sent back to Washington, D.C. to work there for a bit. Then, in February 1943, Arthur volunteered to go to China as a medic and help out for a while, where he spent most of that year. He loved the culture. And then, unusually enough, he worked for the Pentagon in 1944. Wow, that's quite the promotion. <laughs> I don't know if it was an actual promotion, but that's an impressive career progression. So it was here that Arthur met a beautiful and lively woman named Jean. Now, Jean's career, I also think, was cool. She was working as secretary in FBI headquarters. Wow, that is cool. I thought so. They quickly fell in love and married in December of 1944. Arthur was then discharged in 1945 after the war ended. He and Jean packed up and moved back to his hometown in Wisconsin. And Jean became pregnant and welcomed Brian in 1947. I couldn't find the exact dates. Okay. So, when Arthur was having his family, he wanted to become an optometrist. During the week, he went up to Illinois to study and then came home on the weekends. They lived with Arthur's parents during this time as he was studying to save money. He graduated in 1949. Afterwards, they all moved into their own house in Green Bay. He worked really hard and like I mentioned before, he was an extremely ambitious guy and became successful in all that he did. 
So again, this was no different. And Arthur became so good at optometry, he became leader in Wisconsin's Optometry Association and opened his own practice. Arthur and Jean proceeded to have two more children, Terry Joe and Renee, and they grew up in a wonderful house with an acre of woodland near the country club just outside of Green Bay. The Duperolds lived on the edge of the countryside. It was idyllic, and Arthur would often tell his children about the war and his sailing adventures abroad. They would have been some amazing bedtime stories. I know, wouldn't they? Taking place in different parts of the world. And the fact that they're real. So cool. Well, Jean, their mother, was a stunning-looking woman who was independent and lively. She worked as a stay-at-home mother and had a passion for gardening. She also loved cooking, constantly experimenting with new dishes and foreign cuisine. Jean was also an artist who would decorate the house with her paintings and artefacts that Arthur had brought home from Asia. She also loved to entertain, which was unusual at the time as women were typically seen more as arm candy for the men. Both Jean and Arthur were intent on letting their children know that there was a whole world out there with different cultures and things to experience. I've noticed this theme with a few of the other stories we've covered, that travel wasn't very common at those times, but yet these adventurous families go in some really you know, remote places and have these crazy adventures. Apart from cost, you can see why people really didn't want to travel in those days. 100% danger lurking everywhere. Well, Jean and Arthur were good citizens who had done the best that they could to fare well after the war. Both their ambitious natures helped to create the middle class life that they'd lived. They were very much a part of the community. Both active in school and church events, Jean became president of the Golf Club Women's Organization. Arthur also won a leadership plaque with the YMCA as a top volunteer in the fitness program. And for six years, he was a volunteer clerk at his kids' elementary school. He even got some attention for diving in fully clothed to save his friend's daughter from the water in Green Bay. Wow, sounds like a right hero. Yeah, well, here's a nice bit of info for you that will warm your heart more. So when the kids were sick... It was Arthur that tended to them. Terry Joe said he was wonderful with children and tended to the other children in the neighbourhood with things like poison ivy rashes. Oh, that's pretty sweet. <laughs> Salt of the earth type guy here. Arthur was also a big fan of sailing, especially ice boat sailing. He had friends with boats who would let him borrow them to have excursions with the kids. Brian, the oldest brother, was a small guy like his father, and after being teased by his sisters with the name Shrimp, he joined judo and became muscular like his dad. Also, I just want to say something here that made me laugh. My sister and I used to nickname our little brother Shrimp Toast. <laughs> but he's taller than you. Well, he wasn't when we were saying it, but it made me giggle when I read it. Shout out to Shrimp Toast. <laughs> anyway, Brian the eldest was artistic and musical just like his mother, but he also loved to build things like go-karts and do chemistry experiments. Renee the youngest was very feminine, choosing to wear dresses all the time. She was shy and good-natured, and she loved playing dress-up, having tea parties and playing with the other neighbourhood children. Terry Jo Duperalt was a little different. She was quite tall for her age, surpassing her older brother, and was a strong swimmer and tomboy. She loved the outdoors and the activities it could bring, like skating, skiing and horseback riding. She preferred to play by herself than with the other neighbourhood kids. Terry Jo loved animals and was constantly bringing home stray dogs to nurse back to health. They ended up with a menagerie of animals and she started a pet cemetery as a young child. She was also creating bases in the woodlands near their house. That sounds like you. <laughs> I thought that too up until one point until I got to this part and thought... A little less like me. So Terry Joe used to love Tarzan and the woods so much, 
she made her own fur loincloth, where she sewed dead rabbit fur onto a bathing suit. Oh, wow. <laughs> oh, wow. What else is there to say other than my imagination didn't let me get that far? <laughs> so Arthur really wanted to take his family on a dream sailing cruise. He'd always wanted to do it and felt that traveling was the best form of education. He'd been dreaming about this for a while and finally decided that they were going to do it. After finding someone who would take over his optometry practice for a year and speaking to the children's school, they decided to take their dream trip. What year was this? Did the school just let them take them out? 1961, and yeah, pretty much. They gave them the schoolwork they would need to make sure that they didn't fall behind and basically waved them off. Oh wow, I doubt you'd get that now. Probably not. So here was the plan. They spend a few days, two weeks at sea, to see how they liked it. And if they wanted to extend, they would. The trip started off on land in a caravan heading down to Florida. On their way down, they made a pit stop at Fort Lauderdale to initially look at taking a boat out for a week on the Bahamas. Oh, that sounds so good. I want to go on a cruise to the Bahamas. <laughs> Not this one. <laughs> well, this is when they came across the Bluebell. The Bluebell was a long, narrow, elegant racing yacht. It had two masts and three sails. It was 60 feet long and 15 feet wide. The steering wheel was at the end of the boat in the cockpit. There was a lifeboat attached to the cabin roof on the right-hand side of the boat and benches placed along each side for seating. It had a kitchen, toilet, shower and a seating area that doubled as a double bed. It was designed to sleep five passengers and had one berth for the skipper and his wife. This boat was perfect for the five duperolds. Okay, so now I'm going to talk about the captain that they hired, who was another survivor of this incident, but not for the reasons one might initially think. Already then. So the captain's name was Julian Harvey, and I'm also going to give a bit of background info into him too. He was 44 years old at the time of incident, a retired Air Force Lieutenant Colonel, veteran bomber and fighter pilot. Interesting guy. Yep. He was new to Fort Lauderdale, so there wasn't much information on him locally. He'd moved there after his retirement from the Air Force. Julian also loved to sail. He retired in 1958 and moved to Florida and got himself a boat. He joined sailing clubs and was a regular down at the marina. The retirement dream. Especially for a man like him. However, one thing people did find odd was that he spent almost no time talking to the other men there about boats or making friends. He instead always seemed to have a beautiful woman with him and they'd spend their time alone together, not really interacting with other citizens who lived there. He had owned a few boats in the past, but eventually became the skipper of the Bluebell, which was actually owned by another man, Harold Pegg. Julian was a handsome man and looked like a movie star. He was tall, charismatic and charming. There were even rumours that he'd been a model in his youth. He did have a slight stutter and an ever so slightly lazy eye, that would become more prominent in stressful situations. He, similar to Arthur, was a fitness buff. He loved posing for photos with his shirt off and the ladies absolutely loved him. But he was married to a beautiful flight attendant and aspiring writer, Mary Denny Jordan. She was known as Denny to her friends. But Denny wasn't Julian's first wife. She was his sixth. Something tells me this is a bit fishy. <laughs> I see what you did there. <laughs> So now we're going to go on to the main part of the story and the main incident itself. On Wednesday morning, November 8th, 1961, the Bluebell got ready for the journey. It had been fully stocked and ready to set sail. The Duperolts were all on board and getting ready to set off when the owner of the boat, Harold, came about to drop off some ice. 
Brian, the eldest child, had a rifle and when asked by Harold what he intended to do with it, he said that he was going to shoot himself some sharks. Wouldn't be accepted to say that these days. <laughs> <laughs> I know. So eventually they went off and started their holiday, heading out the harbour and into the open water. Finally, they headed into the ocean towards the Bahamas. It had a bit of a rough start when they hit a storm and winds blew at 18 knots for hours. Everyone was excited on board as the sea water sprayed them in the faces as it crashed over the bow. They spent their first few days travelling around the islands, watching fish and birds and other wildlife that they could see. Finally, they crossed the channels to the calmer waters and idyllic setting. Beautiful colour-changing waters, porpoises jumping alongside the boat, that kind of thing. Terry Jo in particular loved this, as she got to see animals and wildlife she'd never experienced in her hometown of Wisconsin. It sure does sound idyllic. It does. They had a little raft and dinghy that they would visit the islands with whilst the bluebell was anchored in the open shallow waters. They spent their time snorkeling and learning about the life under sea. They even tried their hand at spearfishing. Terry Jo over time began to feel a little uncomfortable with Julian as she didn't like the way that he looked at her. But she tried to ignore it and carry on as she had her family with her and she felt safe around them. Her family as a whole were enjoying this vacation so much that Arthur exclaimed he wanted to buy a holiday home there and they would hopefully be coming back in the winter holidays. The thought made Jean very excited as she eyed up little houses along the shoreline. I mean, if you had the money, who wouldn't buy a holiday home in the Bahamas? (laughs) (laughs) I would. It's the first place I buy something when I win the lotto and I mean when I win. Make sure you include me when you win. I will. Anyway, whilst they were there, they did the typical tourist thing and sent mail and postcards back to their family and friends. Denny, who's Julian's wife, sent a letter back to her mother writing about her frustrations, about not being able to get any alone time and that she'd wished people would just leave her alone. She hated having to get up early and cook breakfast for them all. But she knew she was sailing with the family. Also, her husband's the captain. This isn't her holiday. (laughs) (laughs) It's exactly what I thought too. But she did say that the Duperaults were really nice and the children were well behaved. Denny's mother later said that the letter was probably just dramatic as she signed it with a smiley face and didn't really seem that annoyed. She did, however, leave out any mention of her husband Julian in that letter. Interesting. It is. So eventually on Sunday, they had to leave and told people on the island that they had planned another trip before Christmas already. They promised to bring magazines and clothes for the locals on the next trip. A man named Jimmy Wells was another local fisherman that on the Sunday, Arthur spoke to. They got chatting, made friends on the beach, and Arthur explained to Jimmy that there was a shark following the boat, and he considered shooting at it. I'm sure to the excitement of Brian. (laughs) Very much so, but they decided against that in the end. Anyway, they got on so well that Arthur asked Jimmy to join them for dinner upon the ship. Jimmy provided them with stories whilst they ate, recounting his fishing trips and excursions on the islands. They had a wonderful night, telling stories and eating chicken cacciatore and salad that had been made by Denny. That was the last meal ever served upon the Bluebell. Once dinner was over, Jimmy left the ship and returned to the island. Oh boy, here we go. Yeah, so now we're getting to the main part of the story, and honestly, this whole story is wild, so strap in, guys. The next morning, a tanker called the Gulf Lion spotted a dinghy from the Bluebell in the water alone. The people on board the ship noted how, at first, the man seemed to see them but wasn't signalling for help. But, as they turned and approached him to investigate, the man on the dinghy started waving at them. 
and as they got closer, the man aboard that dinghy identified himself as Julian Harvey. And in the dinghy with him was the lifeless body of René Duperold. Whoa, what did he say had happened? Well, when they took him aboard, he told them that he was the sole survivor of a tragedy aboard the Bluebell. So this was Julian's initial version of events. He said that halfway through the night, a storm suddenly appeared with high winds and rocked the boat. Julian claimed that the main mast fell straight down through the hull of the boat and the second mast was knocked down over the engine room. It hit a gas line, causing the ship to erupt into flames and the bluebell slowly sank. He said that some of the duperolts in the cockpit were injured when the masts collapsed. Julian told them that he managed to escape by clambering his way out and launching the dinghy into the open water and leaping into it. Everyone else was either tangled up in the ropes and rigging or in the cockpit, trapped and a fire raging. He said that after the boat sank, he was only able to find the lifeless body of Renee, the youngest Duperold, floating face down in her life jacket. So it's not an entirely unbelievable story. I know. So here's what happened next. The Gulf Lion naturally aren't just going to be like, okay, cool, sure, we'll just leave it at that. They called the Coast Guard and there was a search deployed for the missing boat. The crew of the Gulf Lion felt so bad for what had happened to Julian, they pulled together $180 for a flight back home. He flew back to Miami the following day. I thought he lived in Fort Lauderdale. He did, but that was the main airport. He had to drive from there. Also, as you'll see, he had business to do there. So when he arrived back in Miami, he called the Coast Guard and was asked to appear two days later on Thursday, November 16th, for an inquiry into what happened that night and to the ship and all those on board. So I'm going to go through what happened with that inquiry because it just says so much. The inquiry started and the men heading up the investigation were Ernest L. Murdoch and Coast Guard Captain Robert Barber. Barber showed up a little late to the hearing and missed the bit in the start when Julian showed up. So Julian shows up dressed well, smiling and in good form, which considering you've just lost your wife is super weird. Also, as skipper, he did have some level of responsibility for what happened on board that boat. People definitely noticed it was weird. What happened to a captain always goes down with the ship? Not this captain. Anyway, dressed all in brown, he greeted Murdoch and Harold Pegg, who, as a reminder, is the owner of the Bluebell. He also smiled broadly when introduced to others in the room. Before it all began, Julian asked Murdoch if they'd find any survivors or wreckage from the Bluebell. So Murdoch called the Ghost Guard before it began and asked if they'd find anything. So far, they'd find nothing. The search had turned up no evidence of the ship or its survivors. If there was a real fire, wouldn't there be loads of driftwood and basically pieces of evidence floating around everywhere? Yes, which the Coast Guard also found strange, but not enough to say anything or make any accusations. So, it starts and they explain the reason for the inquiry, put Julian under oath, and ask for his story again. This next bit is from his testimony, but not verbatim, because honestly, we'd be here all day with this story. So, Julian told them that Arthur and himself had decided to basically sail for two days straight, the 200 miles back to Fort Lauderdale. The idea was that they sail continuously through the day and night, taking turns when Julian needed a sleep. Remember, Arthur had done a fair bit of sailing himself, so he wasn't totally unfamiliar. So as before, a small storm shows up, and in the 20 knots wind, the mainsail fell. 
It went straight through the deck as though it was made of paper. It went through the top part of the deck, shot down then through the hull of the ship. When it fell, the ropes yanked of the mizzenmast, which is the second mast, and that snapped and was pulled down onto the cockpit. It crushed most of the decking and they were almost left in the hull. He explained that there were ropes and cables everywhere, and his account was deemed conceivable by Murdoch and Barber. Julian's stutter, however, appeared to be getting worse as he waded through the story, eventually struggling to get the words out and his jaw clacking as he tried to sign them. And they all think it's because of this tragic story where he's basically lost all the passengers and his wife. Yeah, obviously not attributing it to the fact that he's lying through his teeth. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He said that no one was directly hit by a falling mast, but that his wife Denny and Arthur were hurt by splinters that peppered their legs. He was steering and tried to calm everyone down. Julian left the engine running and the ship continued to sail as he moved forward to get some cable cutters from under the deck. When he came back up, the cockpit was on fire and everyone tried to move away from the fire. The children already had on their life jackets. Didn't he first say that it was in the middle of the night and when the storm hit them? What's everyone doing up with life jackets on? I know, just wait. As people moved away from the fire, he noticed everyone moved towards a part of the ship where there was two gas cylinders that lay below. He claimed that he was scared for them and got two fire extinguishers from below deck. The water was already a foot deep in the hold due to the mass that had plummeted through the floor. It was swashing back and forth which made the boat rock and hard to maintain footing. Back on deck, flames were shooting up through the vents in the cockpit engine room. The boat had just been painted with a flammable substance that the flames clung to and licked along the sides. So, he decided to launch the dinghy into the water. This is another part I find super weird. This whole thing is super weird. Well, apparently, when he launched it into the water, the Duperaults decided instead of waiting to be burned alive, they would all leap into the water and Julian would save them on the dinghy. He had tied the dinghy and the little life raft together. So how does he explain the fact that he was supposed to save them in the life raft? Well, his excuse was that it was dark and his light wasn't very good. He couldn't see anything and he couldn't really hear anything either. But the boat's on fire. That's going to produce light of its own in the dark. I know, but apparently it started to extinguish when everybody leapt off and it sank. What, and six people were just alive moments ago and not one of them shouting for help now? Very likely story there. Yeah. He came upon Renee a little while later, dead, floating in the water. He said that with all the strength he could muster, he hauled her into the boat and tried CPR, but was unsuccessful. Julian began to get repetitive, talking about how he found Renee, how he pulled her into the boat by himself, and how amazing it was because he was so tired from launching the dinghy alone. Murdoch began to get a little suspicious at this point and was eyeing him up. Julian stuttered on about how he floated for two hours, where the boat sank hoping to find other survivors, then drifted until about 1pm the following day, which is when the Gulf Lion boat picked him up. Yeah, they can't believe that. Some of it makes no sense. I know. And Murdoch thought the exact same thing. Apparently, after Julian was done, Murdoch leaned back in silence for a few minutes, staring at the ceiling. Pondering all the plot holes, probably. Basically, yes. He felt that the plot holes were more to cover his own negligence if he had been so. The second officer, Barber, wasn't happy with his explanation of the mast. In his experience, masts didn't just plunge straight down through the decking. They're more likely to fall over. 
They also thought it was weird that when the fire broke out, the passengers all went to the aft or back of the ship when the Harvey had gone forwards easily enough and it was safer. Then they wondered why the blaze wasn't seen by a lighthouse just a few miles away in the middle of the black night. Also, there was a mini sail upon that dinghy and they didn't understand that when he had a sail, why he worried so much about drifting off to sea. He was an experienced captain and didn't sail to the nearest island, but decided to drift for about 12 hours. Alarm bells. I know, but with no evidence to the contrary, and him being an experienced captain and war hero, they felt that they didn't really have much reason to doubt him. They decided to interrogate Julian a little further and ask about the radio, why he didn't radio for help. Caught a little off guard, he claimed that it was damaged by the mast. They asked him if he attempted at least, and he said no, because he just knew it would have been broken. Then they asked him about the flares. He had them, but they were at the bottom of his bag and he forgot about them. Also very weird for a captain to forget about the emergency protocols and the supplies, like the flares. (laughs) Yeah, well that was the thing that sent everyone for a loop, because everyone knew about the flares. That's a major note for Murdoch and Barber, who were astounded that he didn't use them or think about them, as well as having the excuse of they're in the bottom of his bag. I've done that for gum or a pen, but not flare when you're floating out at sea. Yeah, they thought it was the most ridiculous thing that they'd ever heard. But again, no evidence to the contrary. Well, what was his excuse about the sail? That he was too tired and the winds were too strong. He also said that he didn't want to do it in case a ship came across him and thought he was just out for a pleasant sail and ignore him. Which also weirded out Murdoch because he thought that the main thing you want to do at this point is be seen and get to safety. A big white sail will get you seen. You can also sail back to the island and get help. Instead of worrying, you'll be swept into the Gulf Stream with a sail attached to your boat. And they said the storm didn't continue all night, so why not use the sail when it got calmer? I know. So, when they asked him about the carbide water light that he claimed to use... He just threw it overboard without activating it because he thought that that was how you activated it. Really? I know. It wasn't, by the way. And Julian was an experienced captain that had been trained in emergency equipment, yet claimed not to know about this either. Murdoch was not having any of it now and asked him how many years experience he'd had being a captain. To which Julian got a little bit defensive and told them he'd been sailing since 1954 He also told them that he'd sailed extensively in the Bahamas. Ooh, that's going to bite him in the bum. Definitely weird things going on here. So, then another Coast Guard stood up after hearing these major plot holes and decided to poke another. So, Julian claimed that he turned the ship into the wind briefly before getting the wire cutters, which, if there had been no fire, would have been a sound decision. But with the fire, it blows all the flames back onto the Duperolds. There was definitely something fishy going on here. But again, they had nothing to prove that this story wasn't true. So they dismissed him and brought Harold Pegg up to the stand for some questioning. They offered Julian to stay and to hear his testimony and cross-examine him if it differed from his own. Did he stay? Ha! Well, he was about to give his answer when the doors to the room burst open and a man came flying in flustered. They've just found another survivor from the ship. Terry Jarduperol. Exactly. A real survivor in this story. Ooh... And this is where we're going to end this episode. But don't worry, you'll get the other half this week. Ooh, that's such a good point to stop at as well. 
Thanks. Cliffhanger. Uh, just a little bit. We'll be back with part two of this tale very soon. The photos from the first part of the story are going to be up on our Facebook and Instagram pages right now. Just search for Not Me, Not Today podcast. And don't be shy to follow, like, share, and subscribe. Tell your friends, neighbours, and your countrymen. And if you want to send us an email, that's notmenottodaypodcast at gmail.com. But until next time, stay alive. Bye. Bye. Not Me, Not Today podcast.